Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, our firm foundation. Amen. Well, today we do consider our, uh, continue rather our series, How Firm a Foundation, where we're working through the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. We began this last week. Last week we heard the Apostle Paul open up his letter to the Corinthians in those first few verses of the, the book of Corinthians. It set the stage for the Corinthians as well as for us. And, and Paul reminded us that everything begins and ends with our foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there's no other foundation other than Jesus. And that is going to be important for us to remember as we continue on in this series. And, and every week we're considering a different foundation, a new foundation every week. But we always need to remember that it all only works. It's all built upon that one foundation of Jesus. Last week, I also encourage you to bring your Bibles with you as we work through this series. So if you have yours with you today, I'd invite you, up to, invite, invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you do that, I'd like to share a little background information with you on the church in Corinth. I mentioned last week that they were experiencing some issues, some problems that caused Paul to write to them in the first place. And we noticed last week that he didn't begin with those problems. He instead began with Jesus. But now Paul does begin to dive into some of those specific issues that were plaguing the church in Corinth. If you read through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul is tackling one issue after another. But in chapter 1, in these few verses we're looking at today, Paul takes on the biggest problem that they were facing, the one that was at the root of all the other issues. Paul is addressing the issue of disunity. And he addresses it by pointing the Corinthians back to their foundation of Jesus and then to the foundation of unity on account of Jesus. It's important for us to understand that the Corinthians were still very young in their faith. They were brand new followers of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to them only about three to five years after his initial visit to their city. And the city of Corinth was a challenging place to be a Christian, let alone a new Christian. It was a harbor city in Greece. It was a commercial center, which means it saw a lot of different people pass through from different walks of life. The city itself was very pluralistic. It housed a wide range of superstitious and religious and philosophical beliefs. There was a wide range of cultures and languages and religions represented, not to mention there was this unsavory attitude, a, a, a reputation of those who live there. There was an expression used in the Roman world that people would use to describe anything debased, vulgar, or immoral. They called it behaving like a Corinthian. And so this was their reputation. And all of this, then, is the setting for Paul's missionary work among them. Needless to say, Paul spent a good year and a half with them at first, teaching and guiding them because they needed that. But even with that, the city was a challenging setting for a young church filled with young Christians. And so we can tell by just, again, reading through Paul's letter to them that they were struggling with what it meant to follow in Christ's footsteps, to believe in Jesus as the only way, truth, and life. If you read through the book, you'll see the amount of instruction Paul has to do 
as they had many misguided thoughts. And, and most pervasive among all of them was this attitude they had, this attitude of hyper-individuality. That what I believe is correct and right, and it's superior to what you believe is correct and right, and so I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you know it. Does that sound like anyone else's culture today? Even though we're separated by over 2,000 years, our worlds are not all that different. We'll be talking more about that in just a moment. But just like us today, the, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, they weren't immune to being tempted by their culture's way of thinking. And so it began to creep into their, their beliefs and their practices. They found themselves adopting more so the, the mindset of their culture rather than the mindset of Christ. And so not surprisingly, this led them into multiple issues. Again, Paul is going to address this throughout his letter to them. How best to honor God through marriage. What to do when lawsuits come up between Christians. How to handle food offered to idols. How the Lord's Supper should and should not be practiced. How to handle spiritual gifts. What to do about orderly worship. The Christians in Corinth had heard from Paul and the other missionaries who had visited them about the true freedom we have in Christ on account of his grace shared with us. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the devil. But the problem was instead of using that freedom that they had to love God and to serve our neighbors, they were instead abusing that freedom, asserting that since God had freed them, they were now free to do whatever they wanted. And so camps started to form around individualistic claims and, and each claiming that their teaching was better than the others and they glommed on to the leader that best they thought supported them. So pretty soon lines were drawn in the sand and disunity was all around. And so that's where Paul begins in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice this, and again, we'll come back to this later that Paul addresses them as united brothers and sisters in the faith, because they were, even though they weren't acting like it. Even though there was visible damage to the unity that they shared, there was still the foundation of unity in Christ. And Paul immediately appeals to that unity as he addresses them. He goes on in verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The question is, who is Chloe? This is the only verse that mentions her. As best we can tell, Chloe may have been a, a rich merchant or some organizer of trade around the Mediterranean because Paul references her people who visited Paul when he was elsewhere. And so whether Chloe was a Christian or not, she was at least sympathetic to the Christian church because she was uh, sending people to report to Paul. And so word came to Paul through her people, updating him on what was going on in Corinth. And so Paul reports back in verse 12 what was reported to him. People were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. 
The Corinthians were lining up behind the different personas, different leaders, in order to make the case that their way was the best way. And they were using the names of the apostles to do it. Paul or Cephas, that's Simon Peter, or Apollos, who was another missionary that came through Corinth. Even someone would lay down the trump card and say, oh yeah, well you follow those guys, we follow Christ. As if Paul or Simon Peter would have been contrary to Christ. But Paul comes down hard on this kind of thinking. And in response, in verse 13, that's what we see there is significant. It shows even a little tongue-in-cheek humor as he's doing so. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is obviously no. Christ is not divided, and so neither should his body, his church, be Paul is calling the the Corinthians to unity, and he does this by pointing out two things there in verse 13. First of all, he mentions the crucifixion of Jesus, where God's very power of salvation was accomplished. And second, he brings up baptism, where we were each individually joined to that event of Christ's crucifixion. And it's also, baptism is also the place where we are joined to his body, the church. It's important that Paul highlights those two things because they are the two things that deliver to us the unity we have in Christ. And Paul is going to make it absolutely clear, neither Jesus' crucifixion nor our baptism are man-made things. They are things that come from God. So you have very little to do with them other than simply to receive them as gifts. You cannot either build up or destroy this unity because it belongs to Jesus. And he has given us that unity through all of his gifts. That's what Paul is getting after in his next few remarks and the next few verses where he's detailing who he did or didn't baptize. He mentions he didn't baptize very many people, that his ministry was primarily to preach the gospel. Other people would have been baptizing. And he was thankful for that because then he realizes the people would have used that, uh, using a baptism by Paul as a means to out-leverage another person. And Paul wasn't about to have that. Even his words, Paul says in verse 17, weren't words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross is perfectly powerful enough all on its own because it comes from Jesus, not from us. And so we can't manipulate either the cross or our baptism to mean whatever it is we want it to mean. But you see, this was the kind of hyper-individuality that the Corinthians were struggling with. And like I mentioned before, it's not much of a stretch to see that same sort of individuality in our world today. Today, if you even suggest that a person's actions should be guided by considering what is best for a larger group or what's best in, in, in our acts of service toward another person, well, that can just be downright offensive. What do you mean I shouldn't do whatever I want or what's best for me? It's my body. It's my mind. It's my life. I get to do whatever I want and I'll staunchly oppose anyone who tells me otherwise. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a Sunday each year when we especially acknowledge and give thanks to God for his gift of earthly life given to each and every one of us. 
as well as his gift of eternal life that he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that value that God places on every human life, we desire to speak up for and defend that gift of life, especially for those who have no voice. But too often our world will cut off that kind of conversation before it even begins, calling it hateful or bigoted or oppressive. But you see, that's our human sin speaking, the sin that resides within each of us. In our sin, we can't help but rebel against the unity that we have with God and with our neighbor. That if we are to live in consideration of God and in consideration of what's best for my neighbor, then it means that I am not always the most important person in every situation. But for those who have adopted the ways of this world and its thinking, that just doesn't fly. And they don't want to hear it. But that's not how the church, the body of Christ, is meant to be. In making his appeal to the Corinthians, Paul lays down the foundation of unity that we have in Jesus. And unity requires humility. Unity requires humility. After all, the life of a Christian is the life of a servant. Just as Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And so when we humble ourselves, as we ought to do, we are choosing to put others ahead of ourselves. And that's always. We shouldn't be guided by the thinking, well, do I have the right to do whatever I want? No, instead, regardless of my so-called rights, we should be guided by doing what's best for my neighbor. And... Trusting that they're going to do the same for me. That's how it works. We are looking out for each other. But I'll warn you, this life of a servant, this life of laying one's life down for another, it's not a glamorous way to live. It's not necessarily feel good. It can involve suffering and sacrifice. And it's certainly not politically correct, especially nowadays, to say to someone, well, maybe you're not the most important person in every situation. But this is how the church is called to live. Now, if this seems like an impossible standard to which Paul is calling us, then you'd be right. After all, what do you think the Corinthians heard, uh, thought when they heard Paul's letter read out loud, probably in church for the very first time? There was probably a lot of downward glances or red embarrassed faces or foot scuffling. Maybe there was even anger against what he was telling them. They would have known that they had fallen far short of this unity that he was calling them towards. And in all likelihood, they might have even been wondering, well, how is this even possible to accomplish? And that's why it's important for us to return to those two things that Paul brought up earlier in discussing the unity that we share, the cross and our baptism. Because in those two events... We are objectively, not subjectively, objectively united with Christ. We may choose to live at times in defiance of that unity, but that unity is still there. 
By Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he shed his blood so that all of our human sins and our, and our sinful actions, they will no longer divide us. Our sins are forgiven by him. We are united with Jesus in his salvation, and not because we earned it, but because he loved us and he's done everything for us. Unity with Jesus is done. It is taken care of. It is there waiting for us always, not on account of us and how well we're living up to it, but it's on account of what Jesus has already completed. And then we know then that this foundation of unity with Jesus is given to us personally, individually, because he has brought us into his church, into his body, by way of our baptism. Baptism, Romans 6 says, connects us very truly and really with Christ's death and resurrection. We die to sin. We are raised to new life in him. We are united with Jesus in both his death and life. But what's more, since we are connected to Jesus in our baptism, we are also connected to his body. We are connected. We are united with one another. And again, it's not based on our efforts. Rather, our unity as Christian brothers and sisters is a precondition. It's there already when we become a Christian. The unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ is already present. Now, the Corinthians were failing to live up to that unity, Paul is pointing out. But, again, with how Paul was addressing them, he's making it clear their failings didn't destroy that unity. Christ was there for them, ready to forgive their sins and restore them to God and restore them to one another. And so the same is true for us. We are forgiven all of our sins. And again and again, we get to return to that foundation of unity that we are united to Christ. We are united with him and we are also united with one another, with whom we live in the forgiveness of sins. So our, our Christian lives, as imperfect as they might be, we are always meant to be living in that which Jesus provides. Our lives are full of love for our God who has made us his, and our lives are full of love for our neighbor whom God has given us so that we might love and serve them. Now to finish today, I, I just want to touch on three brief things in our lives where where this unity is important to think about. There are many, many aspects to this, but we'll focus on just three. First of all, there are some very well-meaning people in the name of unity who will try to condemn the state of the Christian church and all the various denominations that are out there. They'll say that, well, Christ isn't divided and neither should we be, so we should all just get along. And to some extent, that is true. Christ isn't divided. And it's not good that we have divisions in the church. But that doesn't mean that what people teach and believe about God's word, which is the source of truth, isn't important. Because God's truth is always important. The reasons we have different denominations is because of our human sin and shortcomings. That we take the truth of God's word and we fail to agree on its meaning. But our response to that shouldn't be to simply just ignore those important differences, but rather to have the courage to talk about them. And we don't approach our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from, from other denominations in defiance or arrogance or anything like that. 
Rather, we approach them in love, always willing to listen and to talk and seeking to be united in the truth that Christ has gifted us. And so we pray for that unity, especially when unity isn't there. And we also give thanks because we know that we are united ultimately in Christ, even when we may fall short. The second thing I'll mention is specific to us, to Christ our King. That personally, I give thanks for the unity that we are able to and have been able to have, even in the midst of an important pastoral transition. After a pastor who has served here faithfully for nearly 30 years, it would be very easy for people to say, well, I follow Pastor Tom, or I follow Pastor Don, or I follow Pastor Polzine. To which I would have been, I guess, required to say, is Christ divided? Was Pastor Polzine crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Pastor Tom? But no, in credit to all of you and in credit to the wonderful pastors that I have the privilege of working with, we haven't had that kind of division. And we all see why we're here and what we're trying to do. It's all for the sake of the gospel. And so we don't have time to divide ourselves like that. And so we don't. And I am thankful to God for that. The final thing uh, today is that our congregation this afternoon is going to be meeting after our service here. And, And one of the things that we're continually asking ourselves is where is God leading us? Where is God leading this congregation into the future? And how can we best work together, united in mind and in judgment, for that future work that God is calling us toward? And as we do that, we always need to remember those two things, the cross and our baptism. We are always united under the cross of Jesus. All that he has done for us to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life. And we are all also united in our vocation as baptized children of God, working together in all that he has given us to do. After all, it always has been, it is now, and it forever will be always about Jesus. Only Jesus. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our firm foundation. Amen.